You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 228, the Penobscot Expedition. Now, this week, we return to the coast of Maine, which was at the time part of Massachusetts. Although the Maine area of Massachusetts was firmly under Patriot control, the British were still trying to secure Maine for the Loyalists. In the early part of the war, many Loyalists had fled or been expelled from New England. Some of these refugees hoped to form a Loyalist colony in Maine that would provide them with a new place to live. Forming this Loyalist colony to the north would also hem in the Patriots, who still hoped to capture parts of Canada. Maine was very lightly populated at the time, perhaps around 30,000 inhabitants, not counting Indians. The new colony would also serve as a base of operation for British forces closer to New England than Halifax. Two Loyalists from Massachusetts spearheaded the campaign to create the colony of New Ireland. John Califf and John Nutting had both lived near Boston before the war. Califf was a doctor by profession and was a prominent member of colonial society before the war. He served on the Massachusetts General Court, the colonial legislature, and during the colonial era represented his hometown of Ipswich. He had served as a surgeon with the British Army during the reduction of Cape Breton in 1745 and again at Lewisburg during the French and Indian War. Califf's deeply loyalist views got him in trouble early on in the growing dispute between the people of Massachusetts and the royal government. In 1768, Califf was one of only 17 legislators who acceded to the royal government's instructions to rescind a circular letter approved months earlier, objecting to the Townsend Acts. Califf's support of the royal governor ended his career in colonial politics. Paul Revere even produced a political cartoon of Califf and the 16 other supporters of the repeals as marching into hell. After that, Califf lived quietly in his Ipswich home, finished with politics. However, he could not escape his loyalist views. In 1774, as tensions deepened in the colony following passage of the Coercive Acts, many Loyalists found themselves under attack from angry mobs. A mob made up of Caliph's neighbors appeared at his home one day, and Caliph was forced to apologize for his Loyalist vote many years prior and to beg his neighbors' forgiveness. That apparently satisfied the mob, and Caliph was permitted to remain in the community. That said, Califf realized that Massachusetts was becoming increasingly hostile to anyone with any sort of loyalist views. In 1772, at the request of colonial governor Thomas Hutchinson, Califf traveled to London to advocate on behalf of the settlers in Penobscot who were seeking legal approval of their land claims. 
Now, that may be when Caliph began to take more of an interest in the region. Several years later, in January 1775, shortly before the Battle of Lexington, Caliph wrote to former colonial governor Bernard, by that time living in London, encouraging him to support a policy to separate Maine from Massachusetts and create a separate political entity. Bernard approached Lord Dartmouth, then still Secretary for the American Affairs, but nothing came of it at the time. By 1777, Caliph's position within the colony as a known loyalist had become untenable. Fearing that his home might be seized by the state, he sold it and moved his family up to Penobscot. Working with Caliph was another Massachusetts colonist by the name of John Nutting, who was from Cambridge. Nutting was a carpenter and a builder. He built the home of Lieutenant Governor Thomas Oliver. Today, that house is the residence for the president of Harvard University. Nutting had served in the Massachusetts militia during the French and Indian War and was a well-respected member of the community. He was married and had a family. By 1770, he was a master builder, a man of property, and made some money in land speculation as well. That same year, 1770, he seemed to have some financial troubles. He had to mortgage some of his property, while other property was seized to repay debts. But what really got Nutting into trouble was a streak of loyalism at the time when the colony was most definitely moving in the other direction. In 1774, things were heating up as Governor Gage tried to seize the contents of Cambridge's powder magazine and secure the munitions in Boston. For more on that, go way back to episode 46. During that munitions raid by the royal government, Nutting's neighbors tried to convince him to assist with the resistance. Instead, though, he assisted the sheriff in helping the regulars seize the powder and remove it to Boston. This blatant act of loyalism caused his neighbors to turn on him. Some accounts indicate that a mob attacked him and beat him. Nutting fled to Boston with his family, where he came under the protection of the regulars. There he found work and incurred the greater wrath of his patriot neighbors by overseeing the building of barracks for the British regulars. At one point, a group of patriots grabbed him in an attempt to kidnap him and remove him to Cambridge for trial by a patriot committee. Nutting, however, managed to escape and return to his work. Following Lexington and the Siege of Boston, Nutting remained in the city with his family, enduring the hardships and becoming an even more committed supporter of the king. In early 1776, about six weeks prior to the British evacuation of Boston, Nutting took his family to Halifax. Again, with all the other Loyalist refugees, Nutting found his building skills put to good work. He also worked on the city's fortifications. In 1777, Nutting sailed for England in part to propose the establishment of a Loyalist colony on the coast of Maine called New Ireland. Nutting had invested in land in this area before the war. Although he had lost it to repay debts, he had a good familiarity with the area and argued that the establishment of a Loyalist outpost there would help secure the region for the king. There he made contact with William Knox, the Undersecretary of State for North America. Knox had been born and raised in Northern Ireland. He had lived in Georgia for a few years and served on the Colonial Council there. Knox had eventually returned to London, where he acted as an agent for the colonies. 
He lost that job when he supported Parliament's authority to impose the Stamp Act. Knox then began working for the government as an undersecretary for many years, serving under Secretaries Hillsborough, Dartmouth, and Germain. He had a reputation as a hardliner who wanted to see more ruthless use of the military to suppress the rebellion in America. Nutting worked with Knox to get the ministry to support the plan for New Ireland. Nutting helped provide advice on where to establish the settlement on the Penobscot Peninsula, the modern site of Castine, Maine. After about a year in London, Nutting set sail for America with dispatches for establishing New Ireland. On his way, his ship was attacked by the American privateer ship, the Vengeance. Nutting was shot four times during the firefight. His ship was captured, and he was landed on the coast of Spain along with the rest of the crew. He made his way back to London. Despite still recovering from his wounds, Nutting boarded another ship in January 1779, headed for New York. He made it this time and conferred with General Clinton, who dispatched him to Halifax to work with General Francis McLean. The French had built a fort in Penobscot decades earlier, but it had been destroyed and never rebuilt. The force from Halifax was tasked with rebuilding that fort and establishing a haven for New England loyalists in the region. At the end of May 1779, General McLean took a force of 650 regulars, mostly Scottish Highlanders, aboard eight British warships and headed for Penobscot. They also brought 50 artillerymen with an array of cannons. The fleet arrived about two weeks later. They seized the small village that was already there and set about building what would become known as Fort George. With the expedition were its two biggest proponents from Massachusetts, Caliph and Nutting. Having been confronted with an overwhelming force, the local inhabitants took advantage of offers of pardon if they swore oaths of allegiance. About 480 locals from the surrounding area took the oath in the first month. A few others who refused retreated inland into the wilderness in order to avoid British rule. For those locals who remained, the British put many to work clearing trees around the fort. Having established a garrison and with construction of the fort well underway, McLean returned most of the fleet to Halifax. Originally, McLean planned to leave a single ship of war, the Albany, at the site. However, after hearing of a possible counterattack, he also left two additional smaller sloops, the North and the Nautilus. The British laid out and built an entirely new fort, ignoring the old French ruins. They also established two artillery batteries outside the fort in order to protect the bay and give cover to naval vessels who would defend the bay. A word of the British landing on the coast of Maine quickly reached Boston. Maine was not exactly crucial to George Washington's war strategy, but leaders in Massachusetts feared that a British outpost there might kill any chances that they would hold onto the land in any treaty that ended the war. They were not going to wait for any continental support to retake this land. At the time, the leadership in Massachusetts was, well, a divided mess. Only a few months earlier, the French fleet had left for the West Indies after spending the winter in Boston being repaired. The French soldiers and sailors did not get along with the locals. There were at least four significant riots between the two groups, 
with at least one French officer killed as a result. This seems to be a long-time trend that most people don't seem to get along with Boston townies. That issue aside, Governor John Hancock was also in a long-standing feud with James Warren and Samuel Adams. Warren was the former president of the Provincial Congress and head of the Massachusetts Militia. Samuel Adams was still serving as a delegate to the Continental Congress, but acted as the de facto political leader of the state. The political factions were fighting over a variety of issues, exacerbated by the fact that the proposed state constitution of 1778 had been overwhelmingly rejected by the voters and the state was still operating without a constitution. The naval leadership was not much better. John Burroughs Hopkins was the senior military commander in Boston for the Continental Navy. He had just returned from a raid off the Virginia coast. Despite the apparent success, Congress investigated him for not spending enough time at sea and for failing to bring his prize ships to the nearest port. Captain Hopkins was the son of disgraced Commodore Isaac Hopkins and was apparently a target of congressional wrath. The investigation would lead to his suspension and would effectively end his naval career. Taking his place was Captain Dudley Saltonstall, the brother-in-law of Silas Dean. Saltonstall had been one of the original Continental Navy captains, but had also taken a fair amount of criticism. Despite the infighting, the possible loss of Maine to the British seemed to focus everyone's attention. On June 24th, only eight days after the British landed at Penobscot, the General Court of Massachusetts ordered the State Board of War to prepare a fleet to dislodge the British at Penobscot. It took more than a month to assemble a fleet of 19 armed ships, as well as a larger number of support and transport ships. Part of the fleet consisted of three Continental Navy ships that happened to be in Boston at the time, the Warren, the Province, and the Diligent, which would come under the command of Saltonstall in a matter of days. Three more ships, the Tyrannicide, the Hazard, and the Active, made up the entirety of the Massachusetts Navy. The remainder of the fleet was privateers hired for this expedition. The state called for a muster of 1,500 militia, as well as an artillery force from Castle Island, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Paul Revere. The muster was called for two months, thinking this would be a relatively short raid to remove the British and then return home. Militia General Solomon Lovell took overall command of the expedition. Lovell was an experienced officer who had fought in the French and Indian War. He had led troops at the Siege of Boston and, most recently, during the Rhode Island Campaign. Lovell, however, was a militia officer who had not joined the Continental Army. He remained primarily a politician, serving on the general court since before the Revolution began. The hoped-for muster did not meet expectations. The most enthusiastic troops were already away fighting with the Continental Army. Less than 900 men of the 1,500 called for actually turned out. Of those, about one-fourth were young boys or old men deemed unfit for active service. The ships also had their usual difficulties recruiting enough qualified sailors to man the ships. The state offered to match the pay of the Continental Navy for sailors and to reimburse shipowners for any damage to their property during the expedition. 
They also put an embargo on all non-fishing ships leaving Boston Harbor. Now, this was done for the professed reason of preventing word from reaching the enemy, but it also had the effect of preventing any sailors from getting work outside of the expedition. It took nearly six weeks after learning of the British occupation before the Massachusetts fleet left Boston on July 19, 1779. Many of the militia had marched to Townsend, Maine, in order to avoid time aboard ship. It was not until the fleet picked up the troops that Lovell realized that the musters were far below what he expected and that so many of the militiamen were unfit for service. Lovell spent a couple of days drilling the militia, setting off again on July 24th. Now, the British defenders had used their weeks in Penobscot to good effect. They had erected the walls of Fort George and cleared trees around the fort, making an assault much more difficult. They had positioned their three ships in the harbor to good effect. On July 21st, British spies arrived with detailed information about the enemy fleet moving toward their position. Although Fort George was not complete, it was in a defensible condition. McLean put his cannons in place within the fort and prepared to meet the assault. The American commander, General Lovell, had no intelligence about British defenses. He had to wait until his arrival to see what he faced. He landed several Marines who obtained intelligence from some locals. He also received some surprising assistance in the form of 41 Penobscot Indians who volunteered to fight with the Americans. The next day, June 25th, Lovell began his attack. The Americans had a clear and decisive advantage in numbers of ships and cannons. At the same time, many of its crew were inexperienced, and many of the privateer ships seemed reluctant to put their ships at great risk in assaulting Penobscot Bay. The two fleets engaged, but only from a distance and for about two hours, with little damage done to either side. At the same time, Lovell deployed his militia to smaller whaleboats with the intent of landing them on the peninsula near Fort George. However, fear of enemy fire during the landing caused the assault force to turn around and return to their ships after one Indian in the assault was killed by enemy fire. The next day, the Americans tried again, opening up another naval assault on the ships in the harbor. Again, though, the Americans avoided getting too close, resulting in little damage to either fleet. The Marines landed several hundred troops on Nautilus Island, where the British had established one of their artillery outposts. After a brief firefight, the 20-man British crew on the island abandoned their guns and fled. The position on the island gave the Americans a platform to fire on the British ships. However, the British simply pulled back out of range of the island and formed a second line of defense closer to Fort George. After several days of inconclusive fighting, many of the junior officers petitioned for a more decisive action to take Fort George. The Americans settled on a night landing of several hundred militia and marines on the Penobscot Peninsula. The British allowed the Americans to land, but fired on them as the attackers struggled to climb the rocky hills. Most of the British withdrew into the fort, except for a small contingent of about 20 soldiers under Lieutenant John Moore, whose stubborn resistance slowed the American advance at the cost of about half of his soldiers. The Americans captured another artillery outpost, allowing them to focus attention on the fort itself. Eventually, the Americans got within about 550 yards of the fort. 
General McLean knew he was outnumbered and that his incomplete Fort Walls could not sustain an American attack. He planned to put up a brief but honorable defense of a couple of volleys and then surrender the fort. Instead of a final assault, though, the Massachusetts Army under General Lovell halted the attack and Lovell had his men dig in for a siege. He brought up cannons to use against the fort walls. Lovell feared that the ships in the harbor could fire on his troops and called on Saltonstall to take out those ships. Saltonstall argued he could not take out the ships until Lovell took Fort George and the guns covering the ships. The result of this was a standoff that ran for several weeks. Disease, battle deaths, and desertions took their toll as the American forces fell to about 700 effectives. Lovell sent requests back to Boston for more reinforcements. They also became aware that the British were planning to send a relief fleet. Finally, on August 13th, more than two weeks after the initial landing, the Americans planned a coordinated assault on the ships and the fort at the same time. Lovell led a force across the peninsula, engaging the enemy, but still failing to assault the fort directly. That evening, the Americans viewed a fleet approaching from the south. The British commander in New York, General Henry Clinton, received reports of the attack on Fort George. He deployed Commodore George Collier with a fleet of 10 warships led by the 64-gun Reasonable to relieve the garrison at Fort George. With the approach of this large British fleet, the Americans gave up their siege. They boarded their ships and sailed up the Penobscot River. The British fleet pursued them. Eventually, the water grew too shallow to sail any further. The Americans then scuttled or burned any ships that were not captured and set out to march overland through the Maine wilderness back to Massachusetts. Now, the Americans suffered about 150 casualties during the siege, but the retreat and the march home brought that total up to 474, or nearly half the expedition. The British defenders suffered less than 100 casualties. The Americans saw this as a humiliating defeat. Most of the blame fell on Captain Saltonstall, who General Lovell blamed for failing to take out the three ships that were defending Fort George. A court-martial found Saltonstall responsible and dismissed him from military service. The other officer who suffered from this loss was Colonel Paul Revere, who was accused of disobedience and cowardice. Revere was also dismissed from the militia, although a court-martial several years later eventually acquitted him of all charges. The British would continue to occupy Fort George until the end of the war. Next week, we're going to head south to the Gulf Coast, where Spanish and British forces fight the Battle of Baton Rouge. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. 
Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. My thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and George Hunter. Thanks also to Robert Morris Circle supporter, Knox Press. Recently, Knox Press released Links to Liberty, Defending the Great Chain at West Point, which is part of a series of books for young people to learn more about the Revolutionary War. Go to knoxpress.com for more details. My Patreon supporters really help make this podcast possible. If you can make a contribution on patreon.com for as little as $2 a week, you are helping me to make this podcast happen. You can also get the benefit of receiving an ad-free copy of each episode prior to the general release. Supporters of $10 or more also get a free flag magnet each month, although I must admit I got a bit behind on sending out magnets and had to send most of you two magnets last month to make up for the one that I never got out in October. Sorry about that, but my life has been too hectic recently. Thanks also to Rob Marrow for a one-time gift. Much appreciated. I have links on both my website and blog to PayPal, Venmo, and a few other resources if you would like to make a one-time gift to the podcast. This week's look at the Penobscot Expedition was part of a larger struggle to ensure that Maine would become part of the United States and not remain part of British-held Canada. Although the British occupied this territory at the end of the war, they ceded the Maine territory back to Massachusetts as part of the Treaty of Paris. The Loyalists who settled there were forced to relocate to St. Andrews in Canada. The British once again occupied Fort George during the War of 1812, but returned it again as part of the treaty that ended that war. The actual dispute between the U.S. and Britain over the northern border of Maine would remain a point of contention for, between the two countries for decades. It was finally resolved during the administration of President John Tyler when the U.S. and Britain ratified the Webster-Ashburton Treaty in 1842. Now, the Penobscot Expedition also made news earlier this year when the San Francisco United School District announced that it would strip Paul Revere's name from Paul Revere K-8 School for his role in the Penobscot Expedition. The San Francisco Board of Education mistakenly believed that the expedition was designed to steal land from the Penobscot people, not realizing that the Penobscot Indians actually fought alongside Revere and the Americans during this expedition. If you want to read more about the Penobscot Expedition, my book recommendation this week is The Penobscot Expedition, Commodore Saltonstall and the Massachusetts Conspiracy of 1779 by George Buecher. 
It's a relatively short book, just over 160 pages, not counting notes and index, but I think it's a good look at the expedition, and it also covers some of the courts-martial following the event. Uh, The book has been criticized as a bit biased in favor of Commodore Saltonstall, the Navy commander, during the battle. Perhaps that is because the author, Bucher, was himself a commander in the U.S. Navy. Bucher spent his post-Navy years as a professor of history at Jacksonville University. The book on the Penobscot Expedition was first published in 2001, and as always, I've included a link where you can buy a copy of the book, but in this case, you can also read an online copy of the book for free on archive.org, so I've included a link to that as well. My online recommendation this week is a first-hand account of events from the British perspective. It's a pamphlet authored by John Califf, one of the Loyalists who was present for the attack. It's called The Siege of Penobscot by the Rebels. It was originally published in London in 1781, but the copy that they have on archive.org is a 1910 reprint of the pamphlet. In it is a journal kept during the siege of the British efforts to fend off the Patriot attack. As always, you can search for it on archive.org or just use one of the direct links that I've included on my blog or website. My question this week comes from Rob Payne, who asks, What was life like for the Overmountain men leading up to the Battle of Kings Mountain, and what drove them to join with the Patriots? Men like John Sevier and other heroes that have counties named after them from Tennessee to Texas. Well, Rob, the Overmountain Men was a general term used for the settlers on the western frontiers of Virginia and the Carolinas. The name derives from the fact that the men lived over the mountains, the Appalachian Mountains, and these were the men that lived on the western side of those mountains on the colonial frontiers. These western communities tended to be newer, smaller, and poorer than their eastern counterparts. Life on the frontier was hard, Indians were a regular threat, and tax collectors from the east were seen as corrupt and dangerous. These isolated communities were often extended families, holding close local relationships who relied on each other for defense and support. They tended to distrust outsiders, even from other parts of the colony or state. Many of these settlers had either come from Scotland or they were Scotch-Irish, meaning that they had families that originated in Scotland several generations back, but then lived in Northern Ireland for a few generations before finally moving to America. Some of these communities were also German-speaking and had migrated from Western Pennsylvania or Maryland among the Pennsylvania Dutch who settled there. Like most of the colonies, the area had its share of patriots and loyalists. On a few occasions earlier in the war, Tory leaders attempted to organize the Western men on behalf of the king. These did not go particularly well. You may recall earlier episodes where we discussed the losses at Moores Creek Bridge in 1776 and Kettle Creek in 1779, which resulted in punishments for many of these men, including a few executions, These had the effect of keeping any men who might have had some loyalist inclinations to at least nominally support the Patriots or at least keep quiet. There were other reasons, of course, why many thought the Patriot cause was the right one. 
For starters, all of their settlements west of the mountains were illegal under the British Proclamation of 1763. A British victory in the war could have resulted in them losing their lands, regardless of which side they supported. The British were also stirring up the Cherokee for frontier attacks, which directly threatened these communities. Frontiersmen were not confident that Cherokee war parties would be able to distinguish between loyalists and patriots when raiding their frontier farms. A big change came after the Battle of Camden in 1780, which I haven't covered yet in my main episodes. That British victory in South Carolina was followed by warnings from top British officers sent to Western communities in the Carolinas that failure to lay down their arms would result in the British marching over the mountains, hanging patriot leaders, and laying waste to the countryside. The British were feeling cocky, and they wanted to reestablish control of the Carolinas once and for all. Now, the British sent these threats to the frontier settlements, but they really had the opposite of their intended effect. The men believed their communities were in imminent danger of destruction. They mustered into a militia army that was prepared to confront the British. The result was numerous skirmishes in September and early October of 1780, finally resulting in the Battle at King's Mountain. That battle was fought famously almost entirely between Patriot and Loyalists from the area on both sides, and it established pretty conclusively that the Patriots would maintain their control over the Carolinas. If you have a question you would like me to answer, please feel free to email me at mtroy.history at gmail.com or reach out to me on Facebook, Twitter, or Quora. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. <laughs>